Good morning. You see the likeness? I even tried to get my hair to grow out for the series, but uh, it's not as fast. Also, in the spirit of summer, just so you know, I have my flamingo socks on. I, sorry, don't want to neglect this side of the room. I know you wanted to peek at the flamingo socks, right? I won't preach the sermon in the sunglasses. It's just for a little fun. My name is Chad Myers, and I am our discipleship director. I'm glad to be with you this summer Sunday morning. Anybody glad that the rain has finally let up? Yeah? 40 days and 40 nights, it rained. And uh, now we can exit the ark and enjoy the sunshine. So we are starting a series on uh, Wesley and his statements and some of his doctrine and a little bit of his life sprinkled out. I am not a Wesleyan scholar. Technically speaking, I'm not a scholar at all, though I play one on TV. But I have enjoyed learning about Wesley from some of our staff and digging into my own research. And today I'm excited to kick off our series in this room. If you would allow me just to pray once more for God to anoint these words and to speak to our hearts, each of us collectively and individually. Heavenly Father, it's your scriptures. It's your truth. And God, you did anoint John Wesley for some great work and a great task. But he proclaimed you. And so we proclaim you, even as we learn from him and from you today. Speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, overwhelm us with your presence and your love. In Christ's name, amen. Also, I know some of you like to follow along on the bulletin, and it was pointed out to me on the back of the bulletin um, that there's no more room for any of my points. <laughs> it completely went to the very bottom of the bulletin. I had many more points, but they cut it off because it just wouldn't fit. <laughs> In 1982, Christian author Brendan Manning and his wife Rosalind moved from Clearwater Beach, Florida to New Orleans. He did some homework on the origins of the Christian faith in the Deep South. Over a hundred years ago, in that area of the Deep South, the phrase born again was seldom or never used. Rather, the phrase to describe the breakthrough into personal relationship with Jesus was this. I was seized by the power of a great affection. I was seized by the power of a great affection. Have you been seized by the power of a great affection? And what does a life look like that has been captivated by that affection? An old Russian proverb says, those who have the disease called Jesus will never be cured. Has he infected us with his goodness and kindness and his love? And have we been changed in such a way that we just can't get over it? That's what we're going to talk about here today as we look at a statement from John Wesley. This is a picture from the online Encyclopedia Britannica of John Wesley he was born in 1703. History tells us that his mother had 19 children. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, ooh, <laughs> 19 children, um, many of whom unfortunately died in childbirth or, or early on. Uh, so 10 total uh, siblings for John Wesley. You may know John because of him and his brother Charles, the great hymn writer. We talked about him a little bit in our last series on singing loud and dying happy. Charles wrote over 6,500 hymns. And John is known as the evangelist, the preacher, born in 1703, died in 1791, was a clergy in the Anglican church, 
and founder of the Methodist movement in the Church of England. Now, I'm going to start with a quote from him from his own journal in 1738, and then I'm going to reference some things that led up to this statement and this quote. So this is May 24th, known as Aldersgate Day, 1738. This is his own journal, what he says in London. He says this, I went very unwillingly, unwillingly, to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther, Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. It's the introduction to a commentary. At a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He was seized by the power of a great affection. Now, what's very intriguing to me is that this is not the first time that John Wesley was around the church or around the teachings of the church or around the teachings of the Bible. He was an Anglican clergyman for many years before this point in time. He preached many sermons before this point in time, and yet here at this point in time, he looks back and he says, this was a turning point for me. I had a personal encounter with a personal Savior. I had an encounter with the living God, much like Moses had an encounter with the living God and said, I want to see your glory. And God says, no, 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 no. You can just see the place where I pass. And Elijah has an encounter with the living God. And he says, woe is me. I'm a person of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And a cherubim comes and has to atone for Elijah's sin. And much like Peter, when he encounters the living God in the person of Christ in a boat, when Jesus does a miracle and he says, get away. Away from me, God, I'm a sinner. Wesley has an encounter, a personal encounter. Up until this point, he had a lot of, he had a lot of spiritual practices, but he needed a personal encounter. He had a lot of religion, but you might say he didn't necessarily have this relationship with the living God. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation. People uh, think that, that Wesley was referring to the heart in the biblical sense, so it's not just the emotive side of the heart. The, the, the biblical notion of the heart would be the center of a person. Mind, will, desires, affections, all of those kind of encapsulated into one. Not a separation of mind and heart, but all of those encapsulated into one. My life was changed, is what he's saying. So I'm going to talk about a new heart, or a heart being strangely warmed. Some might call it a conversion experience. I'm going to talk about the need for a new heart. As Jeff said just a few moments ago, we all come from the lineage of Adam and Eve. And even if, let's say, you know, well, well, what would we have done in their place? Well, Scripture teaches us that we are sinners by birth and choice, so we would have done the same thing. Left to our own devices, we would have chosen our own path to satisfy our own desires in shortcut ways and to walk away from the good, true reign of the Creator King. And so all of us, east of Eden, we're in need for a new heart. 
Jesus tells this to Nicodemus in John 3, 1 through 4, says this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he is a leader, he is a teacher, he's a Bible scholar, so to speak, and he's a Jewish ruler in the council. Very prestigious, well-known, spiritual leader. He came to Jesus at night, likely because he didn't want other Pharisees to know he was meeting with Jesus because he was genuinely intrigued. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And don't you love Jesus' answers? They're either in a question or they're really vague. You're like, I don't, did you speak to the thing I just said? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus scratches his head. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And so Nicodemus is puzzled because he wants to see if Jesus really is from God. And Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like and what God's about, you got to be born again. And And Nicodemus says, I'm really confused. How can someone who's been born actually be born again? It's a fair question. And Jesus says, it's like the the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. But so it is for those who are born of the Spirit. It's not just the first birth that we need. That leads us into sin and a fallen and broken heart. We need a second birth. We need a new heart. We need a new life. Uh, Technically, theological terms, this is regeneration. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have to be made alive together with Christ. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be seized by the power of a great affection. You have to have your heart strangely warmed. You have to be born again. In essence, and I'll say this again later because it's so important, you need something that you can't give to yourself. You need something that you can't provide yourself. Wesley knew that he needed a new heart. In 1734, he lost his father, so there was a lot of pain there. And then he and Charles came from the UK to the state of Georgia, our neighboring state, Georgia, on a mission trip. And they came to evangelize some local uh, Indian populations here, and it went miserable. They were ineffective. Uh, some, some of the people were put off by Wesley's style of preaching, by his passion, by his zeal. It didn't go well at all. And so when he was going back to England, he was very discouraged. He was very disheartened. And he was on a boat traveling with some Christians from Moravia, Moravian Christians. And a great storm came upon the boat. And he writes in his journal that the storm broke the mast of the boat and water came all over the upper deck and people were terrified and they were screaming. They were screaming because they were afraid that they were going to drown in the ocean. And Wesley watched all this happen and then he looked at the Moravian Christians and they were calm and they were still and they were peaceful and they had a confidence and a faith in Christ that Wesley and his brother said that they frankly envied. They looked at the two types of people on the boat and they said, what do these Christians have that I don't have? He knew he needed a new heart. He had preached Christ. 
He had prayed. He had talked about Jesus. He even went back to England and he kept preaching, but he told his brother, I don't have the faith to keep doing this. He was so discouraged and in despair, and yet, in 1736, he knew that he needed a new heart. So in this emotional and spiritual suffering, he began to pray for it. He began to ask God for it. He began to seek it. And he knew he could confidently because God promises a new heart. God gives us the promise of a new heart. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Now, what he means by flesh here in this context is not sometimes what we find in the New Testament of fallen and sinful nature. He's talking about the contrast between a hard heart and a soft heart, a calloused heart and a spiritually sensitive heart. You see, this is the desire that God wanted to work in the people of Israel, in the community of faith in the Old Testament, to give them a new heart, and yet they didn't cultivate that new heart. They cultivated a calloused heart because they continued to commit idolatry and to walk away from God. And so uh, Ezekiel the prophet says here, your heart's like a heart of stone. It's not beating for God at all. It's not beating for the things of God. It's not spiritually soft and spiritually sensitive. It's not quick to repent or quick to forgive. And he says, it's a good thing that God is giving us a promise that we can be confident that God will trade out our heart of stone, our hard heart, our calloused heart, and give us a soft heart, a heart of flesh. And we can be confident in that promise because God has said he would do it. He's made that declaration. Recently, my wife and I and one of our daughters were going to a, a concert in Charleston, and um, we had rested up to go to this concert because we knew it was going to be a late night, and we were driving about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday, and you guys know how sometimes the traffic in Charleston can start at Columbia. Like, you, you, you get there, you get in, and, and finally on uh, 20, 20 or 26, which one is it? 26, thank you, appreciate that. Good lip reader, keep it going. And uh, you get on 26 and you're just like, wow, it's going to be like this the whole way through. So we were encountering, encountering traffic as we were going to the concert, but we were really looking forward to it. And all of a sudden I get a phone call from someone else who was going to the concert and they said, hey, uh, this hasn't been officially announced, but they're going to cancel the show and postpone it. And I was like, what? What's happening? And they're like, I don't really know, but we know somebody on the inside. And they called us and they said, you know, they're going to reschedule the show. And so we, we, we heard that, but we wanted to be sure. We wanted to see something official. So we continue to travel. We're going along. It's about an hour into the trip. And finally, we looked on social media. And sure enough, it was, hey, we're going to reschedule this concert. So we had driven like an hour and 15 minutes one way. And we had to get off and then come back an hour and 15 minutes. It's funny. The traffic doesn't change from one way to Charleston and back. It doesn't. It's the exact 
same both ways all the time. And, and, and you can be sure that it's going to rain on you at some point when you're going and coming. And so we turn around and we start to come back. And then we, 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 we were really bummed because uh, we had bought these tickets to this show back, way back in December when they had launched the tickets. And we were excited to go see this concert. And so we were hoping to make the schedule and we were hoping that they were going to reschedule. And we finally, finally get this email that they sent to us. And they said, hey, here are the new dates for this concert. And thankfully it works out for us. Here are the new dates for this concert. Your tickets that you've already purchased will be honored. Your tickets that you've already purchased will be honored for the show. Now, that's an assumed thing that you and I would uh, expect because we have the tickets already purchased and we would assume that it would be honored. But we trust that. It's actually, if you think about it, it's actually a step of faith in a declaration Someone spoke it and said they're going to honor these tickets that you have, and it's actually some faith that we have. We use faith in everyday life all the time. We trust people are going to say stuff to us. We trust they're going to come through. We trust that life's going to happen, and people are going to keep their their word to us. And so we trust that this declaration from this ticket organization will honor our tickets. Likewise, God has given us a declaration in his scriptures He's given us a declaration from his word, and we can trust and step out and say, God, you've promised to spiritually make me alive, make me sensitive, make me thoughtful, give me a new heart that beats in line with yours. I need this new heart. I need new desires. And you may be here and you may have been a Christian for a long time. You may have been coming to church for a long time, but you may say, but I, but I feel like my heart's getting calloused. I feel like it used to be really soft and I was hungry and thirsty for the things of God and I feel like it's just getting hard. Give me a soft heart. Well, what happens when you get a new heart? What happens when you get a new heart from God? One person said it like this, that our heart becomes a new order. It becomes well-ordered. And a well-ordered heart, hear me carefully, is to love the right thing to the right degree in the right way with the right kind of love. I'll say it again. A new heart is a well-ordered heart. And that means that we love the right thing to the right degree in the right way with the right kind of love. God awakens our affections And then we begin to order those affections and we love God properly and we love things and people in their proper places. And this is what Wesley said from his own words. What happens when you get a new heart? Well, I trusted, I trusted in Christ alone. You trust in Christ alone. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus and religion. It's not Jesus and a bunch of activity. It's Christ alone for salvation. One of my favorite hymns is Rock of Ages, and I feel like it poetically captures this in stanzas two and three, and they say this, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior, or I die. We need something we can't give to ourselves. 
rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And we begin to realize that we don't trust in our own obedience. We don't trust in our own faithfulness. We start to realize how frail our faithfulness really is. Neither do we let our sins and our shortcomings keep us from the cross, even as we sang earlier, that no one who comes to Jesus will be turned away. We can be confident in that. What does trusting in Christ alone look like? Maybe it looks a little like this. We were hanging out with some friends yesterday, and they invited us to swim in their community pool. They had just got a community pool after uh, what seemed like a really long time, and they were all excited to be there. And so we went there to swim with them for a little bit, and there was uh, a little girl connected to the family, and she was five years old. And they had forgot her floaties and she couldn't swim yet, but she was sitting on this little life raft. It's one of the ones kind of like the loungers where there's a little bitty soft part and then it kind of goes around you. It's got the handles on it. And she knew enough that she couldn't swim and she knew enough that she was in a pool in the water and she knew enough that she was on this little life vest or life raft and um, her granddad was kind of leading her around. But guess where her hands were? They were tucked under those handles really hard. And you could see it in her face that she was a bit nervous and a bit anxious as she was looking around the water because she knew enough to know that I can't swim and if I fall in, I'm a bit in trouble. So I'm going to cling with everything I have in my little five-year-old hands to this life raft. That's what it looks like to trust in Christ alone. We know enough that we can't do it on our own. We know enough that if we were to venture out in our own will and our own virtues and our own mind and our own heart that we would just sink And so we grip firmly the lifeboat of Jesus, and we hold on to Him and to Him alone. There's always a temptation to pollute the gospel. There's always a temptation in our hearts and even in the life of the church to pollute and dilute the gospel, to make it something that it's not, to mix it up with something else. This was happening in Galatians, and Paul writes to them a very strong letter. He says this in chapter 2. You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law, for no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. And then in chapter 3 he says this. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect on your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Where in the world would Paul pick this up if not from Jesus' teaching in John chapter 4 when he says, I have work to do that you don't know about, and if you work for this like I do, you'll never be hungry or thirsty again. And he says, but here is the work that I want you to do. It's to believe in the one that God sent. 
So we hear that, and Jesus kind of pivots on it in, in, in a heartbeat, and we say, well, what's the work you want me to do, God? I'll, I'm ready to do this work. I'll go do this work. And Jesus says, the work that I require of you is to believe, to have faith. That's a bit surprising. To trust in me. Paul says, did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit because of what you did or because what God did? And you trusted. Was your heart strangely warm because all of the great things that you had done for God? Or because the great thing that God had done for you and you opened yourself up to it? It's often tempting <clears throat> to dilute and pollute the good news of Jesus. Because the Galatians were saying there were, there were Gentiles and Jews in this church theologically conservative and theologically not conservative in this church, and the Greeks were coming to Jesus, and the Jews said, well, you should also be circumcised. And so they were forcing circumcision on a lot of these converts to Christianity, and Paul says, no, 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 no. You guys are getting it completely backwards. It's not Jesus and good works. It's Jesus that saves us. It's grace by faith, and the saving faith makes us right with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. The faith that saves is never alone. It produces fruit. It bears fruit. But it comes after the fact. In February of 1739, after Wesley had experienced uh, his heart being strangely warmed at Aldersgate, his life radically changed. He preached for about a year in the Anglican pulpit, but he was beginning to be dismissed from the Anglican pulpit because his preaching was too passionate and a little bit too fiery for them. So Whitfield, although they were at odds on certain theological points, uh, Whitfield was also a great evangelist, and he was preaching in London, and he was preaching a revival that lasted for about three weeks, and there were about 200 uh, coal miners that started at this revival, and three weeks later there was about 6,000 people coming to hear Whitfield, and Whitfield was running out of steam, so guess what he did? He called upon Wesley, because he knew Wesley's preaching. And this was one of the first times that Wesley had ever preached Christ out in an open field, and Charles actually said he didn't want him to do it. And I don't think you should respond to this invitation, but John went ahead and took up the invitation. And he went, and he proclaimed Christ, and he proclaimed Christ alone. And this began John Wesley's preaching career, so to speak, evangelism career, out in open field. And since then, he rode 20,000 miles, some speculate, a year to preach out in the open. And wherever he preached Christ and Christ alone, there was great moral transformation. There was heart transformation. Men became better husbands, fathers, children were converted. Wives and mothers, families were healed and put together, and Wesley preached Christ and Christ alone. It's one of the reasons that we have prayerfully considered to transition out of the UMC, because there's always a temptation to dilute and pollute the Scriptures and the Gospel. And as Jeff said earlier, we want to remain consistent with who we are in our Wesleyan heritage. And so we want to say, this is what we believe the Bible says, 
And to the degree that there is this truth, we want to stand on it. Lives don't get transformed and hearts don't get changed when we dilute and pollute the truth. Amen? It just doesn't happen. We trust in Christ and Christ alone. We proclaim Christ and Christ alone. We're also filled with the love of God. We're filled with the love of God. Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And listen, and hope does not put us to shame because what? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. A heart that is strangely warmed by a personal encounter with God is a heart that is overwhelmed with the love of God, that is filled with the unconditional, unyielding, and unflinching love of our Heavenly Father that says, I have dignity and worth and value because God loves me and accepts me as I am, not as I should be. So I can stand confidently in the gospel of Jesus. <laughs> Let him step out. There's a question in Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, who is God? And the answer is this. God is wise, powerful, holy, just, good, and true. And I think Wesley, some have conjectured that Wesley would look at that and say, but where's God's love? As First John says, God is love. And those who love God live in God. And those who love others live in the love of God. Tim Keller, who recently passed, a great apologist for the Christian faith, said it like this, Cheer up! You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. I'm concerned that if we don't believe both of those really deeply, then we won't cheer up. That it's actually worse for us than we could ever imagine. That is, try as we may for us to search our own lives and hearts and minds. We could say, oh yes, here is my sin, I'm a sinner. That Keller's saying, oh yeah, but there's a lot of things that you don't even know about yourself. It's worse than you could ever imagine. And you're more loved because God knows even those secret things that we don't know. And he still sets his affection on us. And he still delights in us. So cheer up. Christians should be a cheerful people because we are worse sinners than we ever dared imagine and we're more loved than we ever dared hope. We get a heart filled with love. They say that the stethoscope was invented around the 1860s. Doctors use a stethoscope to listen to the heartbeat, to check on our health. And when we get a new heart, we're actually getting the Father's heart. We know that, right? We're getting Jesus' heart, a true heart, a pure heart. And physicians before 1860, did you know how they checked on the health of their patient's heart? They used to lay their ear to the chest cavity and listen to the heartbeat. 
And John says that he laid his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper and listen, listen to the rabbi's heart. And friends, if we want a heart to beat with the love of God, we've got to get up close to Jesus and put our head on his chest and listen to the rabbi's heartbeat that beats for us, that beats for all the world, that beats for the lost, the lonely, the broken, the discouraged, the abused, the abused, the bruised, the misused, the bedraggled, the beat up, the burnt out, the confused, the self-righteous, the addicted. The rabbi's heart beats with love for us. Lastly, I'll close with this. We have a new heart. We want to sin less, and we want to want to sin less. Let me say what I mean by that. We want to sin less, and we want to want to sin less. I was very bothered in college because I really wanted a heart after God. I really prayed for that. God, I want a heart like David. I want a heart after you. I want a heart that beats for you and is sensitive to you. And I just felt like I didn't have it, but I wanted it. And I wrestled with this, and it really disturbed me. So I wrestled with this for months and months and months and months and even years. And finally, someone gave me a bit of wisdom that really gave me some peace. And they said this, did you know a heart for God is not always a heart that beats for God? It's not always that you want God. It's that you want to want God. And I thought, well, that's what I want. I don't always want God, but I want to want God. David said that after he sinned with Bathsheba and tried to cover it up with murder. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Psalm 51.10. David walked with God, but he knew he needed a new heart. Scholars think it was a year probably after he sinned before he'd finally repented. He had got a heart of stone, a calloused heart, and he knew he needed a heart of flesh, a soft heart. Friends, we cry out to God just like David did because we need something we can't give to ourselves. A new heart. Sometimes we, if we're being honest, we may not want a new heart. May not, maybe not a whole new heart. Maybe just a little bit of a new heart. You know what the enemy of a wholly transformed heart is? It's just a little bit transformed. It's just a little bit changed. I'll just have a little bit of prayer, a little bit of Bible study, a little bit of accountability, a side of church, some toppings of a little service, and maybe a little bit of generosity. It's so tempting to fall into the religious game that we're often afraid to pick up the cross for, afraid, for fear that we might get a splinter in our hands. And Jesus says, oh, my friends, my friends, my friends, I love you, but it's much worse than that. You have to lay on the operating table and completely yield everything to me, the great physician, and open up your heart and say, I need a new one. I need a new one. It doesn't beat like I want it to. I need reordered and new desires And God says, you can trust me with it. I know what to do. I can make you new. 
Will you trust me with it?